If you've got a Bible, you can open with me to Mark chapter 3, is where we're going to be this morning, uh, reading together verses 7 to 19. If you don't have a copy of the text, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together this morning, but Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19 is where we're going to be reading. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, we read, Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now when the great crowd heard all that He was doing, they came to Him. And He told His disciples to have a boat ready for Him because of the crowd, lest they crush Him. For He had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around Him to touch Him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And He strictly ordered them not to make Him known. And He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired. And they came to Him and He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles, so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom He gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Benadrus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's Word. Yesterday, I had the unique privilege of spending the majority of my working hours at a robotics tournament in uh, Rockwall ISD over at Utley Middle School. If you're unfamiliar with robotics, it is a joy of all joys. Uh, kids get together and they build these little contraptions and machines through uh, over the course of months and then they compete against each other. It's not like bots, if you've ever seen that. They're not like with saws and razors and they're not slicing anything or destroying anything. Um, it's these little, it looks like Legos that they piece together uh, and then they have like a PlayStation, it looks like joystick or controller that they maneuver the robots around a playing field and they have to accomplish certain tasks like lifting cubes and bringing them over to the corner to score points or moving the balls inside the cubes in order to score points, stacking things and they have like a minute in order to, to, to compete in each round. Now the great thing about robotics is that they compete five times over the course of hours, okay? And their matches are only one minute long. So if you get my drift, right, there's a whole lot of dead space in the day. They're just sitting around and talking. Uh, and then you all huddle around the field as they compete for one minute. And then you go back to your table and you just sit around and kill time. And so as a part of the day yesterday, um, they had, uh, you know, five matches and at the very final match, uh, they got, gathered around the field and uh, the two drivers for uh, my, the team my son's on um, were standing there around the field and they set the robot down and then the buzzer goes off, the horn sounds, and they begin the match. And so the drivers begin to try to drive, but what they failed to realize was robot down was the fact that one of the axles on the drivetrain had become dislodged from the wheel. Now, the, the, the drivetrain's on the back side of the robot, kind of pushing it and then maneuver around. Now, if you only have one axle driving, one wheel, and the other one is not operating, then what happens to that particular vehicle? What does it do? It just spins in a circle, doesn't it? It just goes round and round and accomplishes nothing. 
And so they scored zero points for their team um, in that particular round, which was the final one of the day, which meant that they didn't go on to the playoffs. I have to say, don't know if I was really sad about that or not, um, but that meant we had to go home early. But the robot just went round and round in circles because it was one-sided, right? It didn't have both wheels functioning as they were supposed to in order to achieve what they, it was designed to achieve. It couldn't do anything. It was very one-sided. Listen, and I wonder how many Christians fill churches single Sunday morning have a very one-sided view of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. Now listen, I, I, I want to be very clear this morning that we will get to the, the, the particularly the one side at least that I'm prone to lean toward um, and cause maybe myself and the church to spin in circles at times, um, but that of suffering and sacrifice. Jesus speaks of that later on in Mark's Gospel. He says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to side with me again yourself you've got to serve me instead of yourself there's going to be sacrifice there's going to be suffering there's going to be self-denial that's involved in discipleship but listen that's a that's one of the wheels in the drivetrain of discipleship sacrifice self-denial and service okay that's one side of it but jesus here in the text that we read this morning presents a very robust two-sided view of discipleship it's not only about service it's not only about sacrifice it's not only about self-denial but there's another part of the drivetrain of discipleship that's intended to move us forward and he presents a very robust view of what it means to follow him now in mark chapter 3 jesus popularity is on the rise Okay, he continues to garner for himself large, large, self large crowds. In fact, the text tells us they, they, he said, get a boat in case the crowd tries to crush me, right? Now, that's, that's essentially what it means. When they crowd around Jesus, it's a crushing presence for him that he might have to withdraw into a boat to escape them so he can continue to teach. So there's people coming from all over the place, all over the map, both geographically and ethnically, to hear Jesus to see Jesus, to be near Jesus, and they're pressing into Him because they think if they can just touch Him, they might receive the healing that they've been desiring all of their lives. And in this moment, when Jesus is ascending in popularity, He climbs a mountain and He calls to Himself, He says, those whom He desired, and He appoints twelve apostles, twelve men. Okay, we read their names a moment ago. Um, but these apostles, listen, they were unique in human history. Okay? Uh, they were unique in human history. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They witnessed Jesus everywhere that He went. Okay? So there, there are no living apostles today, no matter what people might call themselves on their websites or their billboards. Right? There's people who might have a type of a pioneering gift, like the apostles did, to take the gospel to different places. Right? But there are no longer people who have the office of apostle. Because there's no longer any people who physically, visibly saw and walked with Jesus the way that these twelve did. And yet, we can learn from Jesus' call of these apostles and our attempts to be His disciples. Okay, Apostles walked and talked with Jesus. They were apostles. We are disciples. And so we can learn from the way that Jesus calls them and the purpose with which He calls them in our discipleship. And that's what we want to do this morning. There's two things that I want to show you in this text. Because when Jesus calls his, these apostles, He calls them with a purpose. And that purpose is twofold. The first purpose that Jesus calls 
the apostles with is this. Is Jesus calls them to enjoy real intimacy with Him. To enjoy real intimacy with Him. And He does the same for us. He calls us to enjoy real intimacy with Him. 13 and 14. Listen, when Jesus calls and appoints the apostles, He does it with a purpose. And the first half of that purpose we find in verse 14 is that the twelve were appointed so that... Anytime you see the word so that in the Bible, it means purpose. So that they might be with Him. Jesus appoints the apostles so they might be with Him. In other words, everywhere Jesus went, they were welcome. Everywhere that Jesus went, they were welcome. They walked and talked with Jesus as men walk and talk with a friend. They ate and fellowshiped with Jesus and traveled with Jesus in the same way that men would eat and travel with their families. So everywhere Jesus went, they were welcome. And everything Jesus did, they were witness to. Right? So the teaching that Jesus did, the healing that Jesus did, the liberating and delivering that Jesus did, they saw the compassion and courage of Jesus. They saw the gentleness and the generosity of Jesus. They saw the power and the authority of Jesus. They were firsthand witnesses to the teaching and preaching of Jesus, the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, they were welcome. Everything Jesus did, they were witness to. They were with Him. Okay? In other words, he was opening his very life to them. To give them access to who he was. He was welcoming them into the very life that he had. And listen, I want you to know something, church. Is that this is the invitation of Jesus to every disciple. For every disciple, the promise of the Christian faith is this. That the finite and limited and frail and fallen human being like me and like you, that what Jesus is inviting us into is that the finite could have intimacy with the infinite. Right? That the, the fallen could have intimacy and relationship and fellowship and know and be with the one who is perfect and pure and holy. That's the invitation for every person who comes to faith in Jesus to have a real relationship with the infinite and unlimited God. Listen, in the very beginning, when God creates the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, He makes everything. And makes man and woman in His image and in His likeness with the intention of sharing relationship with them. So that the satisfaction and the love and the joy that existed in God before He made anything the, the love God had for Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The satisfaction of perfect, harmonious relationship that God shared with Himself. He might share with those that He's created. That they might enjoy Him the way that He enjoyed Himself. And so God brings our first parents into existence to share in the love that God has for Himself. And from the beginning, you see that God walked in the world that He made in order to pursue and have relationship with those that He created. And yet the Bible is very clear that while it was always God's intention for us to enjoy intimacy with the infinite, to enjoy intimacy with God, that sin shattered, severed, and it separated us from God. And yet even whenever our first parents 
Eve there in the garden, took of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, and their eyes were opened. And they clothed themselves, concealed themselves, covered themselves, and hid from God. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that what did God, how did He respond? He came looking for them. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Why? He took the initiative to pursue them. The initiative to come after them. He took the initiative to seek them out. And God has been doing the same ever since the fall. Right, through the creation of Israel, a people for Himself to be a light to the nations of what it looks like to live under the authority and in relationship with God. He establishes a people. And He sends prophets of a Messiah who would suffer and save. And then Jesus Christ Himself incarnate. Right? He comes born of a virgin. Right? Born by the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, into the world to live and die in our place and rise from the grave and ascend to heaven where He is seated at the right hand of God, His work of atonement accomplished, waiting for the Father to say, it's time, right? It's go time. Right? Go back and, and, and collect all of My people. But this is what God has been doing, pursuing and seeking through the sending of His Son, through His Son for us, so that the Apostle Paul might say in the book of Philippians, he might say, I want to what? Know Christ and the power of His resurrection and share in the fellowship of His sufferings and become like Him. Share in His life. This is the promise of Christianity to every disciple that you might be with the very God of the universe. See, all the events of Jesus' life, all the events of His birth, life, and death were accomplished to bring us to God Himself, to enjoy fellowship with Him, to know Him intimately, to know Him personally, to be God. Need more? I'll give you more. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to what Peter says. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, purpose that, so that, what? He might bring us to God. This is Jesus came, the purpose. John 17, when Jesus prays for His disciples, He says, and this is eternal life, that they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. In other words, Jesus says eternal life doesn't begin whenever we come to celebrate your funeral because you've passed from this life. That's not when eternal life begins. Eternal life begins whenever you're born again and you come to know God through Jesus Christ whom He has sent, that you have relationship with Him. His very life He shares with you. That is eternal life. And listen, church, we are shortchanging. Shortchanging the work of Jesus himself if we do not enjoy a personal intimate knowledge of God being with Jesus you're shortchanging it changing it through Jesus Christ God's redeeming reclaiming and reestablishing what was lost through the fall the promise of intimacy with the infinite that's what he's doing and listen while we don't become mystically God himself right we're not panentheists. If you don't know what that is, go look it up, right? We're not panentheists. 
Right? We're Christians. We don't become God. But as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we're partakers of the divine nature, the very life of God living within us. And C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it this way. He says, He will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy, joy, wisdom, and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror that reflects back to God, though of course, on a smaller scale, His own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we are in for. Nothing less. Nothing less. Now listen. In that is life. Listen, church, if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to know that everything else that we are fooling around with trying to find life, trying to find satisfaction, is ultimately going to pale in comparison to this. If you're, if you're not a Christian, you're just kind of kicking the tires on Christianity, right? Trying to figure out if this is really where you want to, who you want to give your life to. I want you to know that everything else that you might pursue or consider will pale in comparison to this. It's like comparing a two-watt nightlight in your son or daughter's room to the brilliance or radiance of the sun. That's the difference. But there's nothing else that can give you what is promised in a personal, intimate with Him. Jeremiah this way in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. See, if you know God, if you know God, listen, you have a life that the strongest, the wisest, and the richest person in the world knows nothing of. Jesus promises intimacy with the infinite. He calls them to be with Him. So what do we do with this? Right? This is what we do with this. As disciples of Jesus, we press in to know Him. We press in to know Him. How do we go about that? Let me give you three things this morning. First of all, you repent of known sin. You repent of known sin. Listen, every time a new iPhone comes out, right, people flock to the stores. Okay, so the new iPhone 11 and iPhone Pro, right, we've got the three cameras, we've got all kinds of, of updated operating systems and software and hardware and that thing. It flies at the speed of light, right? Um, but over the course of time, this happens inevitably. Every time a new iPhone comes out, people flock to the stores to buy it because theirs is now out of date. It's old. It is slow. The battery life is terrible. You ever experienced that? You get a new phone, like the first six months, it seems like the battery lasts for three days. Then after six months, it's like i got to plug the thing in about 3 o'clock in the afternoon or else I'm not going to make it until the evening. Then after nine months, i got to plug it in at lunchtime. Then after 12 months, i got to plug it in at 10 a.m., right? And then I've got to carry a power inverter with me everywhere I go to have a constant source of charge, right? Because there's this of depletion of the battery life of those things or things slow down and a large part of that and they release updates for this because there's bugs that get into the operating system and so they release you know OS 13.1.379 right dash 37 
380, and that, right, that all these updates to the operating system to address all these bugs in the system that would deplete the capacity of the phone. They would drain its battery. They would slow its processors. And listen, sin has the same kind of depleting effect in the life of a disciple of Jesus. Known sin, areas in which we refuse to acknowledge and repent and turn from, they have that same kind of buggy effect in our lives. Right? It diminishes. It diminishes and depletes our intimacy with God. Right? Sin has that kind of an effect. And whether it sins that are very public sins that everyone else can see, but it might also be very private sins that no one else can see. This is where it often happens, is in sins of the heart, sins of the mind, things like lust. Things like greed and hoarding everything to ourselves. Covetousness, wanting more than what God has given. Right? Lust, greed, and covetousness. It might be relational sins like bitterness or anger or resentment that we continue to harbor over those who have wounded us in the past. And so we continue to dwell on those things. We kind of take those things and the, listen, I, the reason I can speak to this is because I've been there. Okay? Personally, you take those things in the closet and you cradle them and just pet them. Right? God, oh, yes, yes, I know. They hurt you so bad. They hurt me so bad. You just keep petting it and petting it and petting it. And you know what it does? It short circuits. It becomes a bug that diminishes the intimacy that you're able to have with the infinite. Because you're holding on to things from the past. Bugs in the operating system. So repent of known sin. Press in to know Him. But the things that you need to repent of today. Second, identify with Jesus publicly. Be baptized. Listen, for those of you in the room who have not been baptized, I want you to consider something. Sometimes our reluctance or outright refusal to be baptized may be hindering our intimacy with Jesus. Our ability to enjoy Him for who He is. Listen, I, I, I recognize this um, as a husband. Okay? There... Those of you who are dating, you may think, oh, I feel so close to my boyfriend or girlfriend. I feel so close to my fiancé, right? But there is a difference. There's only so much intimacy you're able to have prior to standing before your friends and family and committing and pledging your life publicly to that person. Right? Because now everyone else is seen. And so when things get difficult, right, whenever you're going through a valley context of that relationship you just don't go i'm pulling the rip cord right i'm the eject button i'm just bailing on this thing because i publicly identified and committed to that person one else is there supporting you cheering you on yes we want to see this marriage succeed as a picture of the gospel in the world and listen i can say as a as a husband and my wife can probably say as a wife probably more so than i have Right? The things that I've put her through over the years, the reason there's still a sense of intimacy in our relationship is because we stood before friends and family and said, I do. Which means I'm not going to bail. Right? And listen, that kind of intimacy only comes to a public commitment. Public commitment. So identify with Jesus publicly. Be baptized. And potentially there 
listen, baptism does the same thing in your life. It's a public identification. With all of your friends and family spiritually speaking in the room, who are saying, yes, we want to see you succeed. We want to see you thrive. We want to see you flourish. We want to see you know God and serve Him. And listen, your reluctance to do that or refusal to do that might be short-circuiting the intimacy that you're able to enjoy Him or put a cap on the degree of intimacy you can have with Him. Third, third, practice spiritual disciplines. Practice spiritual disciplines. See, we sang a song earlier in the service about Jesus being the living water that we are able to enjoy. I don't know if you, when you go to a restaurant, you go in, you sit down and order, maybe you order a water. We talked about this last week, right? Or maybe you order a soda. Um, and so whatever they drink they bring and set before you, oftentimes they also bring you a what? Straw, don't they? Yeah. Now the water that you are drinking is what's able to nourish your body, isn't it? Right? It's able to hydrate you. But the straw that they bring you is the channel through water flows in order to bring the hydration that your body needs. Listen, spiritual disciplines are not the water that your body The water that your body needs is fellowship, intimacy, closeness, relationship, walking with a living God who gives living water that overflows out of Him and is able to cause you to rejoice. That's what your heart and soul needs. But the channel through which that comes, the means by which God brings that, is through these disciplines that we might exercise. And when we hear the word discipline, oftentimes we want to recoil at that a little bit, right? Discipline. That's what my parents did to me when I got out of line when I was a kid, right? Took off the belt and gave me a whooping. Or the flip-flop, or whatever was closest. That was my experience, okay? Um fly swatter, the flip-flop, anything they could grab in the moment. That's what happened to me as a kid. But listen, the word, word discipline in this context, here's what I want you to think of. Here's what discipline is. I talked to our Axis kids about this on Wednesday night. Discipline is this. Discipline is saying no to the things that you need to say no to so that you can say yes to the things that you need to say yes to. That's what discipline is. That's what it is to exercise a degree of self-control in your life. Discipline saying no you need to say no to and they may not they just distracting trivial in your life you can say yes to the things that you need to say yes to that are divine things that are eternal things they're going to bring about change and transformation in you right so that's what discipline is saying no so that you can say yes so that you have the the bandwidth and the space and the time and the to give to those things that are life-giving for you, not just mind-numbing for you. So things like Bible reading, being in the Word of God and under the Word of God. So being in it for yourself and under it whenever it's taught, whenever it's preached. Right? So let me ask you a question. What do you know to so that you can say yes to being in God's Word and under God's Word? Our prayer of communion with God, of being before Him and pouring out our heart. But know Him. Not just bringing a laundry list before Him, right? We tend to do in our prayer. God, fix this, heal this, correct that. Amen. 
but also a sense of communion, of deep expression of our hearts and knowing God's pleasure on our lives because of Christ. What do you need to say no to so you can say yes to prayer? Carving out time for that. Fasting is a part of self-discipline. Whether you're fasting from food or some other thing that takes an inordinate amount of your time. You just say no to so you can say yes to. Right? Service. Some of us have so many things going on in our life. You have to think about serving others in this time. You're like, right? Just mind-blowing. But what do you need to say no to that is trivial and distracting so you can say yes to giving your life away, your energy away to others in service? What distractions? Listen, silence is a spiritual discipline of coming before God and quieting all noise. I don't know about you, but my life is noisy. Okay, all the noise. What do you need to say no to to say yes to? Silence. So you practice the disciplines. You identify with Jesus publicly. You repent of known sin. And you press in to know Him. To enjoy intimacy with Him which is His promise to every disciple. But the second thing, and based on the time, hopefully much shorter, is this. Not only does Jesus call us to know Him personally and intimately, but also Jesus calls us to engage in vital ministry alongside of Him. I want you to notice the second half of that statement in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says that He appoints the twelve so that might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, I want you to notice something. Whether you've been with us through Mark's Gospel so far yet, or up, up to this point or not, take you back a little bit and show you a few things. Verses 23 through 26, Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit in a synagogue there in Capernaum. Jesus rebukes him and says, be silent and come out of him. And the whole unclean spirit convulses the man and comes out. Then in verse 34, as he stays at Peter's home, it says he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Then in verse 38 of chapter 1, it says this, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching dogs and casting out demons. Listen, did do you see it yet? No? Okay. Here's, here's, here's what's going on. Jesus says, I want to call you to do the very thing that I've been doing. What has He been doing? He's been preaching. And He's been casting. Preaching and liberating. Preaching and freeing people. Preaching and bringing healing in the lives of those who are broken and shattered. The very thing that He's been doing. Jesus has been preaching. He calls the twelve to preach. Jesus has been liberating people from bondage. He calls the twelve to liberate people from bondage. And this, whenever you look at the miraculous works of Jesus in the Gospels, one of the things you have to recognize is this. Listen, Jesus is not merely suspending the natural order. Right? Listen, if Jesus wanted to do miracles, right, where He, like leapt over a tall building in one single bound, right? Where he flew through the, through the air and shot laser beams out of his eyes. Like, he could have done that. Right? It would have been pretty impressive. 
Could have been like an avenger, okay? But Jesus doesn't do those kinds of miracles. It's not the kinds of miracles that Jesus does. He's not suspending the natural order by flying around, like breaking the law of gravity. What he's doing is he's restoring the natural world that God intended. So he's taking eyes that don't work and making them work. He's taking withered hands and restoring their function. He's taking lepers who are ostracized from community, who are living in isolation. He's healing the body of diseases and reweaving them into the fabric of society. That's what he's doing. He's restoring the way things were intended to be, not suspending the way things are. And listen, you and I, when Jesus commissions us as disciples, yes, to be with Him and know Him personally, intimately, but also to be sent out by Him, He's commissioning us to the very thing that He to preach and to be a part of seeing restoration and healing of the shattered lives, the, 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 the shatteredness, the effects of sin have had on the lives of people. And so what do we do with this? Listen, not only do we press in to know Him, but we push back on sin and suffering in this world. So we press in and we push. See, the only, listen, let me just say it very clearly this morning. The only remedy for someone's sin is a Savior. That's the only remedy. You cannot educate people out of their sin. Okay? You, it's not enough to tutor them in math, which... I need a lot of help in. It's not enough to tutor them in English. I'm not enough to tutor them in whatever, uh, whatever subject they're struggling in, thinking that if they can do a good job and they can just earn some money and they can be self-sufficient and break the cycle of poverty, then that will help them deal with their sin. No, you cannot educate people or hire people out of sin. The only remedy for our sin problem is a Savior, and that's why Jesus commissions them to preach. That's why He commissions them to preach. Listen, Jesus, if, if Jesus, we think of Jesus as the great physician for our right? If you were to go to a doctor with a sore throat, right, scratchy, itchy, sore throat, a fever that you've been running, a little bit of in your stomach, nausea in your stomach, and you go to the doctor, swabs the back of your throat. Don't you all love that? When they like, gag you and they swab way back there as far as they can get to take a culture to test it to see if you have strep. The culture comes back and they say, you have strep. So go home and take a bunch of Advil. Right? What are you doing? All you're doing is addressing the symptoms. You're not addressing the source. Well, that, if they've been to medical and it, then they're going to you not Advil, but antibiotics to address the infection, the source, under all those symptoms. And the same is true in our lives and the lives of those that we're seeking to minister to. The only solution for their sin is a Savior. It is not merely dealing with the symptoms of sin in their lives, but dealing with the source of it, their heart. What they need is to be born again. What they need is to have one who would cleanse and renew and restore one who would give them a new heart, who would place His Spirit within them, who would write His law upon their hearts, so that what they want to do is to 
serve and honor and love Jesus and not feast on sin longer. See, the only remedy for our sin problem is a Savior. And yet, there may be many remedies for the suffering that sin inflicts in a person's life. Are you with me? There's one remedy. The source. But there may be many remedies for all of the suffering and pain that sin has compounded and inflicted in the life of an individual. And so we do move towards those who are in poverty to seek to bring them to a place of independence, no longer relying upon systems of government or handouts. We do serve those who are impoverished. We do serve those who are addicted. Right? Who've created channels and paths in their brains. And this, right, whether it be addiction to pornography or addiction to cocaine, it does the same thing to the brain. It creates channels and pathways that we just grooves that we just fall naturally back into. Addiction to anxiety, addiction to revenge, all these addictions we might be struggling with, it creates channels that we fall into. And so we serve those who are addicted, those who have been abused. We care for them with tender compassion. And they come out of an abusive family. And so we surround them in a new family to help order their lives and show them what functional, healthy families look like, feel like, and live like. Or maybe someone who's experienced racial inequity. Right, we become a, a, a to them. Someone who would speak on their behalf. Right, there's all types of ways sin inflicts suffering in people's lives. There's only one remedy for the source. But there might be many ways that we go about treating some of the symptoms even after the source becomes is addressed in their life what they have compounded by their decisions in their past or the decisions of others towards them in their past, we show up and help alleviate suffering. Liberating people, restoring people, healing people from their suffering and their sickness. That's the call of Jesus. He says, engage in vital ministry with me by pushing back sin, suffering in the world. And listen, when we do, I want you to notice the response. Listen, early in the text, it says that Jesus' fame was spreading. And I want you to notice where it was spreading. It was spreading to these places, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, the Transjordan, Tyre, and Sidon. Right, geographically, I want you to consider something. That what Mark is saying is this, is that the fame and reputation of Jesus is spreading to the north, and it's spreading to the south, and it's spreading to the east, and it's spreading to the west. In other words, it's spreading circumspectly, everywhere, right? And not only locally but regionally, because some of these locations are 120 miles away. People were coming from 120 miles away, not driving 60 miles an hour in a car. They're not flying for 15 minutes in a plane. They're walking or riding 
120 miles to get to Jesus because His fame is spreading. And listen, a church, people that would embrace the call of Jesus in their life, both axles of being with Him and sent out by Him, will, see, will begin to see that kind of witness in the world as it spreads to the ends of the earth all around them. Because the church, like those like disciples, like those original apostles, listen, tend to be made up of people from all different walks of life. Because not only was the fame of Jesus spreading geographically, but it was spreading ethnically and vocationally. Look at, look at who some of these disciples were. Listen, I, I know I've got to be done, but I just want to give you this before we're done. These disciples, they're a mixed bag of people. Consider with me three categories. You had fishermen. Right? Blue-collar workers in Jesus' day who were out at the lake fishing day after day after day, bringing their catches into market. And you had tax collectors who were doing what to the fishermen? Extorting them. Alright? There was extortion going on. They were saying, Rome needs X amount. We're going to raise that to take the slush fund off the top for ourselves. So the fishermen despise the tax collectors. And the zealots who wanted to see the restoration of Israel so much, the foreign occupiers and oppression gone so deeply that they were willing to exact violence upon their occupiers, including the tax collectors. And the tax collectors hated the zealots. The fishermen hated the tax collectors. And who does Jesus call? Fishermen? Tax collectors and zealots. So people who can't get along at all politically are a part of 12. That Jesus says, come and be with me. And be sent out by me. And listen, when the things that divide us in the world melt away in the church is a powerful witness to the lost. And Jesus' fame spreads far and wide. As a people who come from all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives. Press in to know Him. And push back sin and suffering. That's His call. Enjoy Him and engage in the ministry He calls you to. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word today. We thank You that in the same way that You called, Your Son called those 12 apostles over 2,000 years ago. He's placed a call in all of our lives as His disciples that we might be with Him. That we might know You and the power of, of Jesus' resurrection and share in the fellowship of His sufferings, become like Him in His death. That our lives might be patterned after Him as we walk with Him, as we have intimacy with Him, as we enjoy Him repenting of sin, identifying with Him publicly, and practicing so that might, the very life of Christ might be channeled in us. 
as we become partakers of the divine nature according to your glorious and precious promises. And then as we walk with you, that you might send us out to push back sin and suffering in this world, to bring the one remedy for the source, which is and repentance and faith. And I see men and women saved by grace, through faith, and in Christ. And then we might roll up our sleeves to participate in the unraveling of the tangled knots that sin has created in the lives of those who are suffering on account of the consequences. Father, would you continue to bring men and women walk of life? people whom the world would say they have nothing in common. And would you bind them, bind us together as a church around the person of Jesus Christ and advance your mission of saving and liberating and restoring you advance it far and wide through Redeemer Church. We pray in Jesus' name.